Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is May the 25th, 2018. This is episode 2226 of the Survival Podcast. And this is, of course, a Friday, so it is Expert Council Day. This is where you send me your questions for council members, and the way you do that, send an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, put TSPC expert in the subject line, and then tell me who the expert is the question's for, and then give me the question in one concise sentence, and hit return, and give me the details. I've been doing this almost 10 years now, and I promise you things will go better that way, and you'll be more likely to get the answer you're looking for if you take that approach. So what do we got today? We have dealing with Scotch Thistle from Jeff Lawton. We have dealing with beetles and yellow jackets and messing around with your beehives from Michael Jordan. We have how heat affects the storage of medical supplies with Doc Bones. Backup power solutions for sump pumps with Stephen Harris. Cooking sausage to the proper temperature and growing in core fiber, Keith Snow. Combining forges and rocket mass heaters with Paul Wheaton with a special guest appearance with Paul. I have some fake news you likely believe. When I give it to you, you'll be like, yeah, well, that's the case. I've heard that. It must be true. And then I'll explain to you why it's not. It'll be a pretty short segment, so I'm also going to answer a question for a guy today on 223 versus 243 and crappy stocks causing heavy recoil. We'll get to all of that in just a bit. Before we do, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We are up to the year 133 A.D. in our walk through history with David Verne today. Servius takes command after major setbacks in Judea. Remember, we're in the middle of the third Jewish revolt right now, and it's not going well for Rome. Hadrian orders his best general, Sextus Servius, to leave his post in Britain and march with all haste to Judea. Hadrian refused to transfer legions from the west to the east, so Servius gathered auxiliary units from Britain and any legions in the eastern provinces. He enters Judea in the summer with five to six full legions. Elements from six other legions uh, and 50 to 60 auxiliary units, a total of around 100,000 men, outnumbered three or four to one. Servius came up with a brutal and effective strategy. He sent small groups of wide-ranging soldiers to capture Jews, lock them up, and leave them to starve. Meanwhile, larger Roman groups were cutting off supply routes and raised entire villages to the ground. My take by David Verne. Roman governors were the ultimate military and civilian authority within the borders of their province, but these powers extended no further. This caused problems when the Romans were conducting large-scale campaigns spanning several provinces. To fix this, Hadrian gave Servius special powers to go above the governor's heads, and act as he saw fit in the emperor's name. Equally ranked military commanders have a tendency to butt heads when they feel someone else is interfering in their command area. A great example of this was the Pacific Theater during World War II, where General MacArthur and Admiral Nimitz struggled to agree on strategy and logistics. Yeah, generally in a military operation, you will have commanders who are seen equal, and you will have a commander that they report to. And this is also how we run companies when they're run properly. And I have heard the, the compelling arguments both of you have made. I am not interested in hearing any more because I have considered carefully both of your points. I have decided to do this, which may be you know, person A or person B's idea, or I might have combined them in some way. Now I expect you to go carry them out 
to the best of your ability. And in general, you have to have that. You cannot have an organization where everybody's equal and consensus is not reached. And generally, to reach complete consensus will require, at some point, a decision-making authority or a decision-making method. So maybe it will not be one person that makes that decision. Maybe it will be a group that makes that decision with a vote. But once the decision is made, all parties need to partake equally or the organization or the military unit will most likely fail. Even when they are better equipped, better suited, more likely to win, when you have indecision with something like military action, you, you generally don't do very well. In other words, war should be fought for the purpose of victory only when necessary, not for political reasons. Because if you go into a war for political reasons, you will almost always be indecisive, and you will, well, you can just look at history and see the wars I'm talking about. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your first uh, question for an expert council member. I have one on Scotch Thistle for Jeff Lawton. Jeff, go ahead and take it away, man. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here from Kristen. And Kristen is also in Australia, um, in New South Wales, near Canberra. And um, they purchased a property, 32 acres, in a cool temperate zone on fairly good land, but they have one issue, and that's Scotch thistle. Um, they've, um, there's a bit of it around, but it's pretty small, and it's not very dense. I would like to know how to deal with it without chemicals. Um, their property is surrounded by a multi-million dollar merino sheep wool farm, and um, so they don't want to interfere with that. And it's also likely that the current arrangement which sees some of the sheep grazing on this property um, on occasion um, will will continue. Well, what you've got is um, you've got Scotch thistles which indicate a uh, unavailability of iron and copper or a deficiency of iron and copper. Usually it's not a deficiency of iron and copper. It's just the fact that it's unavailable because of a... Um, a pH variation. So uh, the pH has usually gone out of, um, away from neutral. In deserts, it can be where it's gone extra alkali. But in your case, I would say in the um, areas of, of um, New South Wales where you get a bit of rainfall, you get extra compaction from the grazing of the animals. So you get overgrazing in damp or wet conditions. Uh, the moisture in the soil has compacted um, the soil, uh, made it go a little bit more acid, and the first things that get locked up, pretty close to the first thing that gets locked up, are iron and copper. And the germination condition for thistles is the unavailability of iron and copper. Um, thistles harvest iron and copper when it's not available to other plants. And as soon as it is available, they stop germinating. So um, really what you have to do is relieve the compaction problem. Well, you have to relieve the acidity, but the acidity is actually caused by, um, I would say, by overgrazing. And if it's uh, adjusted uh, sheep, um, the owner's not that worried about your land so much and might graze when you wouldn't because it might be a little bit too damp, a bit too wet, uh, they're a bit too concentrated, uh, they've compacted the soil, they've made it go air, a little bit airless, um, that's uh, dropped the pH into the acid zone, 
uh, iron and copper are unavailable. Um, germination condition um, perfect for thistles. Um, the seeds are sitting there dormant. They're not going to germinate until that condition occurs. Bump up they come. You can see it happen all the time on wet years when landscape uh, when paddocks are overgrazed in wet conditions. You can see the next year up come the thistles pretty fast, or within a few months up they come. Um, so it doesn't sound like you've got a bad situation. What I would do is um, go through and condition the soil with a chisel plough. Um, or uh, um, if it's only small areas, you can actually uber um, broad fork and, and decompact that way. But that's a lot of manual work. Um, the, um, um, the yeoman's plough is, of course, the classic um, but you also have um, just basic chisel ploughs. There's a good one made by FarmTech in Australia. There's also the aerator, which is a sort of um, a crescent spiked drum roller uh, that relieves compaction. It's just a matter of relieving compaction. Best to relieve compaction on contour and get a better soakage, and um, your thistles will disappear. It's quite simple. Um, you can verify this by looking at areas that are heavily compacted by animals. doesn't matter what type of uh, grazing animal. If they're heavily compacted around stockyards, you get a lot of manure, you get a lot of compaction, and up come the thistles. It's an easy one to see and a good one to pay attention to. Um, don't forget that you can eat the core of thistles as well if you want to. If you want to peel off the spiky leaves on the outside, the inside of a thistle is like... Um, um, celery and it's full of good minerals of course and uh, plenty of iron and copper if you need that okay there you go sorry about my dog in the background just barking at the horses that have come for uh, a bit of early morning feed there you go so just one real quick addition there um if you're ever dealing with anything that's a thistle uh wild lettuce uh, prickly things like that um there is an animal that will eat it like candy almost to the exclusion of everything else till it's gone and that is the goose. When we moved onto this property and we added geese, at the time the geese showed up, we had an abundance of thistle and an abundance of uh, prickly lettuce. And now, with the ducks and geese having been gone for quite a while, there's still barely any of it. And that is a balance of two things. One, they ate it down and they broke the cycle of growth. But two is we've increased the bioavailability of nutrients on the property, and that's the other thing Jeff was talking about. But uh, you may or may not, depending on you know how much you want to deal with, want to add geese to your your plan. Uh, a few geese running around on a, a you know a middle sized property really won't do much harm to it. Uh, you do have to think about any gardens or stuff you have like that because they like to eat stuff and they like to attack stuff. They, one of the big problems I had with the geese here is when you put in young sapling trees, they would, they would attack them. I don't know why, but they did. It had, if it was new, they would attack it. You'd have a sapling tree that was already there and they had grown up and seen it be there and they're okay with it. You put a new one and it's like it pissed them off. So you have to think about do you really want geese in your life? But, uh, they will eat thistle and they will eat lettuce, especially, when you get them out on the pasture early in the season when that stuff's young, because it's much more palatable at that stage, and they would literally run from plant to plant and eat it to the ground, and they ate all of that before they really ate much of anything else. About the only thing they ate with as much reckless abandon as the uh, the thistles and prickly lettuce uh, was lamb's quarter. Uh, lamb's quarter was like the most goose candy thing on planet earth anyway next up i have a question for michael jordan on de dealing with beetles and uh, yellow jackets in regards to your apiary 
Michael, take it away. Hey, this is your buddy Michael Jordan here on the TSP Network. Talking about bees, apiary management, and the fine makings of mead. Hey, I've got a great question, and I had to break out some entomology books and do a little background search for myself, but I got a question on American Keraton beetle. Uh, it's like a, a little beetle that's like a burrower in the ground. So my question comes from Jeff Hitter in central Virginia next to the Shenandoah Mountain National Forest. Uh, he's got a good question for us here on the Survival Podcast. He says, is there a treatment for my beehive for the American Carrion Beetle? That's C-A-R-R-I-O-N Beetle. And what do I do about yellow jackets in the fall? Yesterday we added a second hive box to our hive, the opening of the entrance of the hive, and opened it up. This is new hive and it seems to be growing well. Not fast, but average. Today I noticed a bunch of beetles having a party on the ground in front of the hive. They're not going in or out. See the picture I sent? They have a yellow head and a black body. I believe they're American carrion beetles. I, I agree with you. We have uh, two hives last year. The first one grew. The second one was slow. We lost both hives to yellow jackets in the fall. I didn't know not what to do to rob and kill that fall. The old bees were dumped out four foot on the ground in front of the hives last year. We have yellow jackets again this year, and I can't find the, est, the nest. What can I do to mitigate them from robbing the hives? Thanks, Jeff. Okay, so the American Carlambito beetle comes uh, through in the fall and is in during the daylight hours. And after a few hours, it flies begin arriving on a carcass. So what you have is you have this beetle going through and laying its eggs and eating and stuff in the larva of the dead bees and carcasses that you dumped in front of your hive. So basically, this is a nature's way of cleaning up. Now, if they were coming in out of your hive, they'd be eating the larva of the beetles or the bees in your hive, which means that basically they're overtaking the hive. But they're just on the ground cleaning up the mess from the dead bees that you had before. Uh, overwintering, inter, overwintering by these adult bees are laying eggs and they consume the raw flesh of the dead carcass or the fungus and they overwinter in the ground and then when they come back out they repopulate and go again. So if you want to get rid of those, right, you just kind of need to dig up the area that you were there and move that area somewhere else and those will eat those bees. They'll try to lay their larvae in some areas and eventually they'll die off because there won't be a food source. But you said this was created by uh, yellow jackets. So I think one of the best things to talk about then is how to take care of the yellow jacket problem. Right? Yellow jackets are meat eaters, man. Uh, hornets. Uh, what are they called? Wasps. Uh, they, they all are like meat eaters. So they go in and they steal the honey. They steal the larva. They steal the bees. They chew it up and they spit it back into a ball. Lay their eggs in it and then the bait. The larva eats the protein, the honey, and the dead carcass. So basically, these yellow jackets, if they're going in out of your hive and it's a fall time, we need to mitigate different things. So on yellow jackets, you need to put up a hornet trap or a yellow jacket trap. They can found it in any hardware store, uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, Tractor Supply. What it is it's a container that is yellow, attracts the hornets and stuff to them. You put in a scent pack 
that is provided and it draws these critters to it. Now bees won't go to it because it's not a sugar source. These other critters will go to it, get trapped inside, and then they can't get out and they die. You want to take one of these and you want to put it about five foot above your beehives. What happens is when the hornets are being drawn to the hive, they end up going to this trap and they don't go back to their nesting facility and not giving any more of the hornets, wasps, yellow jackets the chance to find the hive because they're getting trapped in this trap. So it's good to put this over it. Another good thing is to shine a light on it. If you got a solar spotlight, shine that on it at night. Uh, then you're also going to catch uh, moths and other bugs, kind of like wax moth and things like that are flying around. And they'll get caught in those because of the light, because they're drawn towards the light. So the light will hit it and it'll draw those bugs in it as well. Remember to change and empty this about every three days, making sure that it's not full. And that way you can keep mitigating on how much you're getting. On times when it's getting fuller, you must be going through a hatching season. And as it gets stopped, you must be eliminating the hornet problem. Uh, a good a good thing also to do for the hornets and the robbing is look for robbing screens. Now, they're sold at many beekeeping supply stores like Dan and Man Lake Limited. Uh, what they are is a screen that goes over the front door of the hive, and this eliminates robbing from hive to hive and other pests that are coming in. And what it does is diverts the flight pattern of the bees coming in and out, and those that are coming in to rob have a harder time getting in, and those that are trying to get in and out know the pattern are getting inspected and coming in and out. So look at robbing screens. Now you said this was in fall, so you got to remember when we get into the areas where it, it is fall. Uh, this is around, you know, oh, I'd say August, September in most places. Uh, this is a good time to start closing all your doorways completely off, right? You only need like a one inch. I've never seen a tree with a big opening for the bees to come in and out. So I'm not a real big fan of uh, having the big openings anyway, but it's a good time to get down the openings down to about one inch and put the robbing screens on. Uh, we use the uh, nook disc, so most of our hives don't have landing. They just have a hole on the side like a tree with a nook disc. And you can put on, uh, turn it so that the queen excluder parts on, on that nook disc, allowing the bees to still coming out. But it mitigates and it's harder for other, uh, you know, flying insects to get in. So these are some really good ways to start uh, mitigating the, you know, your, I guess your yellow jacket problem until you find out where they are. So start trapping them, start loosening the holes, put up some robbing boards and get that taken care of. But I think when you're looking at your little beetles traveling around, I think they're just cleaning up from the mess that was made last year. And I wouldn't really mess with them unless they're going out of your hive. Hey, I also want to tell you that this is the time of year, probably about everywhere you're seeing swarms and things like that. So this is a good time to mitigate and not lose your bees to swarms, but start doing splits. Remember to stop swarming, add space to your beehive. If you've seen queen cells, try to do splits. Uh, you know, I've written some articles on the Tervoff split of the shake and let the bees regroup. Uh, we do cloaking board splits. Uh, we do walkaways. We do nooks. Right? The object's not to lose your bees and have other people have problems from swarming problems. But we do want to repopulate the bee population. So this is a good time now to downsize your hives dump out the bees and do a split and that way they all grow pretty evenly and pretty good and you won't lose your bees so this is the swarm and split season let's try to get out there get our swarm traps up and mitigate our bees so we don't lose them and cause other problems for other people 
Hey, I'm your buddy Michael Jordan here in Cheyenne, Wyoming with AB Friendly Company at abfriendlycompany.com. If you have questions on mead making, bees, apiary management, any kind of topic in general like that, that like I said, this is a good question about how to stop pest control and what the beetles are doing. It's a little entomology there for you. Give us a question. We'd like to answer it. Buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small industry because we all start somewhere. Hey, and help your fellow man. Because one day, we're all going to need help too. Okay, next up I have a question for Doc Bones on the storage of medical supplies in areas with excessive heat, like let's say a vehicle uh, with your storage. So, uh, Doc Bones, take it away, man. Hi, Joe Alton, MD, here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Bob in Texas, who asks, how does heat affect the medications in my vehicle first aid kit? I put together first aid kits for each of our vehicles, and it concerns me that they sit in the vehicle in the hot summer sun in Texas. What effect does the heat have on medications like ibuprofen, acetaminophen, aspirin, and first aid creams like neosporin? What can I do to mitigate any negative effects, and how often should I replace them? Thanks to Doc Bones and Nurse Amy for bringing such extensive medical knowledge to the expert council. Well, thank you very much. I am flattered. Bob, try as you might, it is hard to find medicines and other health products that don't caution against storage at high temperatures. As a matter of fact, most specify storing at room temperature. The FDA says that 75 degrees is the ideal temperature, although I would even say a little cooler would be better. Other factors that increase drug life are low humidity, keep them dry, and avoidance of light, keep them dark. So, what happens if you can't keep medicines at the recommended temperature like you would with, say, a vehicle kit in the Texas sun? Well, for antiseptics like alcohol or betadine wipes, they'll likely dry out pretty quickly, so you're going to have to replace these pretty regularly. Certainly, I don't think they'll last more than one summer. Now, for things like neosporin, there are probably few ill effects from using meds that have been in a hot vehicle. That is, you won't grow a horn in the middle of your forehead from using medicines like that, but you will lose some potency of the drug. Drugs that are stored at 90 degrees Fahrenheit lose potency probably twice as fast as those stored at 50 degrees. Now, that's a big deal if it's medicine that you need at 100% effectiveness. I wish I could give you more specific data on all this stuff, but studies on drug effectiveness are based on proper storage. So companies have little incentive to perform studies that are on medicines that are stored improperly. It's much easier to just say you shouldn't use them and get fresh items. Now, having said that, a study was done in 2004 by the American College of Chest Physicians in which a common inhaled asthma medications delivered half of its expected dosage after being exposed to 150-degree temperatures for just four hours. Well, let's face it, you shouldn't leave any medicine in a locked car on a 100-degree summer day. I would be most concerned, however, about medications that are in liquid, cream, or ointment form than solid pills or capsules. You may have to replace ointments and creams and liquids, perhaps maybe every few months or every couple of months, especially in warm weather. Try to keep drugs and medicine cabinets inside, but not in 
bathrooms. And also beware of storing on top of refrigerators. The refrigerators tend to be warm and bathrooms tend to be too humid. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook on Amazon or at our website at doomandbloom.net, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Hey, I make an old man, me, very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy Channel, and Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page. Don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a discount on anything in our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. All right, folks, uh, good stuff there. Next up, I have a question for Stephen Harris on backup power for sump pumps. And despite the intro you'll hear from Steve, I'm going to say this is a definite Harris rant. <laughs> All right, Steve, take it away. Beep. Note to Jack Spearco, this is Steve Harris. This is not a rant. I'm just tired and being passionate and expressive. Thank you. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the expert panel, and I am a piker, as Jack would say. I have been ignoring the expert panel for the last couple months because I have been awfully darn busy. In fact, right now it's 2.59 a.m. on Friday morning, and I'm recording this for the Friday show as we speak because I don't want to let you guys down. I have been busy as heck. I am now the chief technology officer of a startup company, and we are using Harris Power. <laughs> details to be released in the future. If you want some teaser details, sign up for my email at stephen1234.com. And also, it takes me a fair amount of work to get everything set up for the really great thrilling bug-out trailer shows I've been doing with Jack the first or second Tuesday of every month. Uh, I organize everything, get everything in the right order. Sometimes I call people, clarify questions, ask more details. But it takes a fair amount of work, but you guys are worth it because I absolutely love delivering that quality to you. So, I have been asked a question. Steve! What is the best option for a backup for my sump pump? If you don't know what a sump pump is, it's a well in your basement about the size of a 15-gallon bucket. It's got a motor in it and a pipe. And when it fills up because you got a high water table, the pump comes on and it pumps it outside. So otherwise, your basement will flood. I have a home I've had been in for just over one year. It has two sump pumps. Steve Harris has won some pumps, so I know the problems. And when the power failed a couple weeks ago, came on six hours later, my sump pump was full. I was getting ready to discharge it when the power came back on, literally. I was looking at my sump pump, getting ready to unplug it, plug it into the cable to the generator, and the power came back on just as I touched the cable. It's like, wow, magic, Woohoo! So anyways, the guy says, I've looked at the different stores and bought, uh, brought back, uh, systems, but none of them seem to be powerful enough to manage the water for more than eight hours. I need something that'll cover me for eight plus hours while I'm at work, should the power go out. 
I'm sure I could use a battery bank system, but I'm not sure how to size it to carry the load. Well, go to battery1234.com. It'll be the cheapest $35 you ever spent and get my four and a half hour battery bank system and you don't know what to do. That's why I did it for you. It took me 550 hours to make it. If you want it for $25, join Jack's MSB. There'll be discount links for you to get it for 25 bucks. So also I've looked at the water powered sump pump backup systems. It would work, but it would go through a lot of water to keep both systems operating. It would also take a lot of plumbing for me to get the water to the sump pump pits. Okay, here's someone worried about being efficient again. Let's talk about your sump pump is not running all the friggin' time. Your sump pump is only running when it fills up. It's usually determining how fast it's filling up by how much it's raining. Or if you have an abnormally high water table, you might have a constant sump pump running like once every 15, 30, 60 minutes, something like that. So you should have told me if you're in that situation or not, but it don't run all the time. So if the battery says it'll run it for eight hours, that means it's probably for eight hours of pumping. My sump pump runs for less than 45 seconds, and then it turns itself off. It does this maybe about every 6, 10, 12, 18 hours, or maybe every hour or two or three if it's raining really hard. So most of your basement backup watchdog stuff that you get at Home Depot that's way overpriced will probably back up your sump pumps while you're at work. I would also try to suggest to get some type of notification of when your power fails at home so you know that at work is like, I got to go home. Uh, my energy company actually calls me on my phone when the power fails. And then they call me on my phone when the power is back on. And I'm home, I'm going like, no kidding. But I guess if you're at work, it really would be a good feature. So, that's the battery backup of the sump pump. You can go buy one. They're called watchdogs and other things. Or you can build a Harris battery bank and put it on your sump pump, and it'll work great. Or you can do what I did for my mother at her house, and you go on Amazon, and you search for an inverter charger. Those are the two words, inverter space charger. And it's one box, usually about 300 bucks or more. The one I got was called Royal Power, but they're on there with different reviews. Mine eventually died after like four years. Ames makes one. You go research and take a look at them and find out which one works good. But all you do is like screw the inverter to the wall, or I did to a, a post holding up the house, and you plug it into the wall for 120 volts, and you plug on two golf cart batteries. And then you plug in the sump pump with into the inverter. And now it's called an inverter charger with transfer switch. So when the grid is on, it's powering the sump pump through the grid. As soon as the power failure, it goes click, and it's not like a UPS. It takes a third or, or a half a second 
and you are now powering your sump pump off of batteries. I would bet that two golf cart batteries, two GC2s from Sam's Club or Costco would power your sump pump for a hell of a lot more than eight hours. That is another option. If you're just in a hurry and everything else, your backup sump pump systems are going to be friggin' expensive, like 450 bucks. Why don't you go buy three, two or three really good UPS computer backup systems from Amazon for 150 each? And you plug your sump pump into UPS number one, you plug UPS number one into UPS number two, you plug UPS number two into UPS number three, you plug UPS number three into the wall. I mean, and it's got, your UPS is going to have to be at least 1500 volt amps. A volt amp is not a watt because it takes what's into considered power factor. Watts takes into what's called a power factor. Usually 80% times the volt amps is going to be the actual watts of the unit. So a 1500 volt amp unit, your minimum that you want to get is about 900 watts with a surge capacity of something. So it'll probably handle your sump pump. So your sump pump is running off the wall. When the power fails, it's running off a of UPS number one. UPS number two is recharging UPS number one, and as UPS number two is draining, UPS number three is charging UPS number two, which is charging UPS number one. So when your sump pump is not running, everything is recharging itself, and it should last a good eight hours, $450, order it on Amazon, each, you know, for each sump pump, so 900 bucks, and it'll last you for a good five years before the gel cell battery goes and doesn't work anymore. Or you can do what I did, and that's when I moved from Detroit to Pittsburgh, and now I'm back in Detroit. I had criminals next to me that broke into my house, stole all my guns, raped my house, you name it. So I had surveillance up and going, monitoring everything. And while I was in Pittsburgh and had my house in Detroit, I didn't want my camera system or computer system to go down. So I went out and got, it was like a Belkin UPS from Costco for like $120. And it happened to have taken a 12-volt gel cell battery. Well, I put a relay on it, okay? And I plugged my computer and surveillance system into this, you know, Belkin that would hold it up for 10 minutes. And what happened is when the power failed, the relay would go clunk and it would switch over the 12 volts going to the internal 12 volt battery of the Belkin over to the 800 ampere hours of super batteries I had in the basement that were kept charged by two other systems. So my little $120 Belkin with like a 20 ampere hour battery now had 800 ampere hours behind it, and it would basically run just about forever. I took my surveillance real serious. Now, you said for you guys out there, there are water-powered sump pump pumps. Now, hanging from my sump pump up drain, I have a $2 water bed drain and fill kit that I bought at Kmart. You can still find them on Amazon. All you do is you screw it onto your utility sink, screw on a hose, throw the hose in the sump pump, turn on the water in the utility sink, 
The water flowing through the waterbed drain and fill kit creates a venturi, which is a negative pressure, and it'll suck my sump pump dry. But you're using water from the sink, from the uh, city, and it's sucking out water out of your sump pump and going down the drain. So if going down the drain's not a problem, then that's okay. Some people's drain goes back into their sump, believe it or not. If you're on a well... And out in the country, this ain't going to work because the power's failed, so your well pump's not working anyways. But this is a great little thing to have to drain your sump pump. Now, the automatic water ones, what they do is they go, oh, the power has failed. And they got an automatic, super-duper version of my waterbed drain and fill kit in the sump pump with an output going already out in a second uh, pipe going down to the bottom of the sump pump, and what it does is goes float valve, goes click, your sump pump is full, it turns on the water from the city water pressure, and it uses the same Venturi effect, and a water goes through, and it sucks the water out of your sump pump, and you're done, okay? But he goes, well, this will use a little too much water. What do you care if it even used 500 gallons of water? Would you really care? 500 gallons of water is like 25 cents from the city. It works. It doesn't go bad. It doesn't require batteries. And your basement didn't flood. What do you care how much water? It's like people go, I want to power my house off of 12 volts, you know, because it's more efficient. It's more efficient. Meantime, I say, hey, just go buy a $20 inverter, go clamp it onto the battery in your hood, run a standard extension cord from Home Depot into the house, plug in the 120-volt lights and everything all around your house, light your house up, power your TV, and, yeah, you know, you know, you're, you're worried about efficiency of 12 volts versus 120 volts. Worry about what works, what doesn't fail. Worry about what you can depend on, not what is efficient. So, this is a tired Stephen Harris at 3 a.m. in the morning. You know, my wife always used to say, why do you say 3 a.m. in the morning? It's like redundant, 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 redundant. I don't know. I just do. But that is the answer for you on how to take care of sump pumps through various different methods that I guarantee you each and every one I listed will work for you exceptionally well. This is Stephen Harris. If you want to know some of the fun stuff I'm doing, Joe, join my email list at stephen1234.com. In fact, I've basically stopped all marketing and new products for knowledge publications because I'm so busy with the startup, and I want to make my retirement money and be happy. So that's what I'm working on at the moment, but I will continue to contribute to the Survival Podcast. Garen friggin' Teed. See you guys later. Bye. This is Stephen Harris. After I've had an alcoholic beverage, I just listened to everything I said, and I wanted to iterate something. People come into your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. I don't want to be a part of TSP for a reason. You come and buy my videos. I don't want to be in TSP and Jack Spiracle for a season, a good 10 years. I want to be with TSP and Jack Spirico 
for a lifetime, as long as he's running it. I really don't care if you guys buy one thing I have with what I am doing. I personally, thoroughly enjoy being a contributor to your safety and to your preparedness. And those little emails that I get that's like, oh, we had all the water we wanted and our neighbors were paying 20 bucks a gallon for it and our kids were watching DVDs and I watched Lord of the Rings during the power failure with the inverter off my car at the idle. You know what? That is something that you cannot get with all the money in the world. One of my favorite sayings, when one candle lights another... It loses nothing. Bless you guys. I'll talk to you in the near future. It sounded like a rant to me. <laughs> anyway, it was a little bit long, too, but we haven't had Steve on for an expert panel question for a while, so I went ahead and let that one be a bit long. But expert panel members, remember, you're to confine your answers to 10 minutes, not 15. Uh, next up, I have a question for uh, Chef Keats. No, actually two. One on cooking sausage to proper temperature and the other on growing in, in, uh, in coconut fiber. Keith, take it away. Okay, hey Jack, here's two questions for you. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. I've got a couple questions that I want to answer for some audience members. First is Sean from Austin, and he's wondering why when he cooks sausages, they still look raw inside, or they're still pink inside when the outside is fully cooked. Now, this is something that uh, I've seen in my own family when I've brought sausages to the table. Um, usually it's my wife or my oldest daughter, both of them. Well, my wife is not paranoid about it, but she knows that the oldest daughter is absolutely paranoid about uncooked meat. And, I um, mean, if there's a burger and it's got any red in it, she just is not doing it. So uh, rather than get upset about it, I've uh, <laughs> just learned to deal with it. But to Sean's question, first of all, just a couple of tips. When you're cooking sausages or any meat that's going to go on a very hot um, grill or something like that, frying pan, you want to make sure that they've been taken out of the refrigerator, which is at about between 37 and you know 40 degrees, and let them uh, warm up a bit at room temperature. Now, I'm not telling you to take them out in the morning and cook them at night. That's probably not a great idea. But you certainly can take them out an hour, hour and a half, two hours. They are not going to rot on the counter. So keep that in mind. But the closer they are to room temperature, the more even cooking you're going to get. So most people are going to be grilling sausages um, or, you know, pan frying. Now, I've seen people take brats, for instance, and they put them on a grill that's just ripping hot. Of course, if they've got natural casings, they tend to want to drip some fat um, right through onto the grill. That's going to cause a lot of um, flame. Now, Keep in mind, if you're just cooking them on the grill, you can turn them a few times, get some good color, then move them off to an indirect heat and close the lid of the grill and let them finish cooking. You can't really cook them you know, over a ripping hot fire the whole time because you're just going to have burnt up stuff. So with all that being said, Sean, these sausages are a member of what the French call charcuterie, you know, salami, sausages, pâtés, all these things are ground up meat with fat, spices, seasoning, and in the case of sausages and other meats, something called 
pink salt. This is cure or they call it salt peter. There's other names for it, you know, professional names. What it is is a preservative and it it protects or enhances color. This is why corned beef and pastrami and ham and these type of things have bacon. They have that kind of pinkish hue to them. Now, if you went to the store and, you know, you had some ham and it was like a dark gray color, it probably, in your mind, it wouldn't feel as as appetizing or wouldn't look as appetizing. It's going to taste pretty much the same because this really doesn't lend much flavor, um, maybe a little, but what it does is give you that pink color. Now, that's great when you're talking about a ham sandwich, but I can see why you're panicked about your sausages looking pink in the middle. Now, that pink salt is going to regulate the color and it's going to be hard for you to cook it completely, you know, quote unquote, cooked looking on the inside because of the, the salt cure or the preservative that's in there. So um, that is one reason. The other reason is muscle meats, particularly when you're dealing with ground meats like sausages, usually going to have some pork shoulder in it, which is good for this. They have something called myoglobin, which is a relative of hemoglobin. These are proteins, and um, they both contain heme, H-E-M-E, and heme is a substance that you know makes blood red. Now, I don't mean to turn this into a... Um, Friday the 13th movie on you, but um, keep in mind, heme is what makes things red. And a case in point, if you guys have seen, it's hard not to see if you're in the food media and following um, what's going on, but there's a company called Impossible Burger, and it's, you know, funded by some tech companies, and they're rolling out this Impossible Burger, and it's a plant-based burger. I've never tried it, but what they've done is they figure out a way to take heme, which is from animals, animal protein, like I just said, and they're growing it um, with vegetables like soybeans and yeast. It's a very complicated thing. But they're getting these heme compounds and they're putting it into their plant-based burger so it bleeds. Now, to me, I think it's crazy, but this is what they're what they're doing, and it it gives the the meat eater who's switching over, you know, the look of beef. Now, this same heme is going to be in your sausages, and it's going to be sort of working against you when you're cooking them. So, I just want you to know that. Now, the best way to make sure any meat is cooked is by using a proper thermometer. Uh, for sausages, I would recommend a digital stick thermometer that kind of um, look like a pocket knife and the probe sort of uh, folds open and then you can um, pierce the end of the sausage and in about three seconds get a very accurate temperature. That is, if you're not a cheapskate and you spend at least $20 on this thermometer. Um, Amazon is just the graveyard of Chinese copycats and they'll take any product and re-engineer it for $8 and then people, oh, it's only $8. You're going to get a piece of garbage if you spend $8. So look to spend um, $20, $25 on a proper stick thermometer and you need to look for a brand that actually is in the business of making thermometers, not just copying other people's stuff and putting any brand name on it. That's the warning. A good brand is Taylor. Taylor Scientific, I think it's called. They make pretty good um, thermometers and related products. Uh, another good one is called True, but I don't know if they've got a thick stick thermometer. I'm going to give Jack a link for a decent, about a $25 Taylor stick thermometer. Maybe he'll put it in the show notes. 
Um, you can find it on Amazon. So if you pierce your sausages and they're 145 degrees, they're fully cooked, even if there's some pink in there. So that's it, Sean. Don't panic about that and enjoy your sausages. Um, my next question is from Shannon, Columbia, South Carolina, about coconut fiber. It's called or it's spelled C-O-I-R. I've heard it pronounced different ways. I won't even attempt it. But what it is is a growing medium. And it's popular in hydroponic gardens. You can get this stuff um, just about anywhere, and it comes compressed in a block. Now, this stuff is thirsty. I mean, it, you, you can put gallons and gallons of water on this stuff, and then it'll slowly kind of puff up, and the compressed block turns into a heck of a lot of growing medium, but it needs to be sort of flooded with water to realize how much you have. Now, you can put seeds and plants inside of this stuff, and um, the fiber provides a great medium for the roots to take hold. Now, um, Shannon's problem is she's trying to grow in this um, coconut fiber, but she doesn't put any soil in there, and she's not using any uh, liquid feed. So her plants look sick and dead and whatever. And this is a problem that people don't. They see that you can, oh, you can grow in this coconut stuff, and it's sustainable and all that wonderful stuff. But plants need nutrients. Now, I've used a system in the past, and I still have it. It's called Vertigrow. It's a good system for growing hydroponically. And uh, it does use a combination of the um, coconut fiber and then also some vermiculite and perlite. And these are things that are attracting water and holding on to it. But the other thing is that this system is feeding the plants a liquid feed. And now you can get an organic variety or the regular sort of chemical fertilizer variety, and you can get amazing results. But the coconut fiber is not feeding the plants. It's simply providing a place for the roots to take hold and have some structure. So if you're growing potted plants in this stuff, do not expect them to do well on their own. You're going to have to feed them. And uh, I would suggest some type of um, potting soil that has some fertilizer in it or some type of a liquid um, feed. Otherwise, your plants are not going to thrive. So coconut fiber is basically an inner type of substance, and it's not um, it's not for feeding the plants. So, Shannon, I hope that answered the question for you. The other thing um, is make sure that your potted plants, vegetables, and all that, they need Full sun. Now, some people get confused. Oh, they're in the sun for five and a half hours or six. That's just not enough. These plants will do much better in full sun. In other words, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, the very latest, they're in the sun and they're like that most of the day. So keep that in mind. Now, folks, I hope everybody has a great weekend. I wanted to put a little plug out there. Tons and tons of you have um, requested uh, my spices to come back in stock and um, due to some family reasons and also the fact that my supplier was making it very difficult for me to order on a monthly basis smaller amounts that I need to take care of my customers. Um, they wanted me to buy 2,200 pounds and I cannot buy 2,200 pounds. So I have not had any spices for a while. Uh, my suppliers had some management changes and all of a sudden they're willing to take care of me. Uh, I've been ordering uh, my inventory and my organic spices from them since 2006. And uh, through the years, it's been a little challenging because they've been sold a few times and merged and all that. Um, but 
in the end, I have spices in the Harvest Eating store right now. And I've got uh, Montana steak, grilled chicken, Texas beef and brisket, Carolina barbecue, seafood, Greek chicken, and northern Italian. So I don't have a huge quantity, but they're in stock now. So those of you that are fans of the spices, uh, first of all, I appreciate everybody supporting them. But you can go over to harvesteating.com slash shopping and find them there. With that, Jack and everybody else, have a great weekend. So on, on the sausage stuff, let me just say there are certain things that are going to be pinkish, right? I mean, if you cook Polish sausages or uh, kielbasa or something like that, it's going to be pink because it's cured, and Chef mentioned that. Um, and then there are certain times when a food will maybe appear red even when it's fully cooked. For instance, uh, we raise some chickens that are known as Red Rangers, very large chicken if you grow them to large size, which we did. How large? You know, dressed weights of 8 to 10 pounds or more. Uh, yeah, that's carcass weight. You know, It's plucked and everything, and it's still being that big. So compare that to your typical 4-pound uh, roaster chicken. And these chickens, even at that size, don't really have very large breasts. They have huge thighs. And whenever I cooked them, if I cooked them with the bone, it always looked undercooked. Including one time, I took one of these uh, chickens and quartered it, and I put it in a crock pot. And I cooked it on low in a crock pot and made, like, you know, a chicken stew. And that chicken was in the crock pot for, like, three hours, four hours, something like that. Steaming meat falling off the bone apart. And the bones for the thighs still looked red. And so sometimes it's just best that people not see certain parts of what you cook and just eat it and not have to deal with their crap. I'm just saying. Um, now, on temperature, I'm not big on taking temperature of sausage. Um, generally speaking, I can figure out when a sausage is done, and I, I think you can too. And you can easily cook sausage past the 145 degrees and not have it dry out because it's sausage, especially if we don't go poking holes in it. And generally speaking, when you, when you pick a sausage up with tongs and you can feel the skin is really tight from expansion, and a lot of times you can actually feel like a simmering, boiling vibration in there, it's cooked. Okay, it's cooked. Uh, now, maybe you aren't getting a temperature. I'm not sure. And I doesn't always have to not have the skin poked or broke because a lot of times your skin will break and char a little bit and grease goes down and flames come up and it gets all a little bit of black on it and it's all so good that way. Um, but I generally don't. But if you're going to get a thermometer, I'll put the one that Chef recommended in the show notes. But I actually recommend one by a company called Perfect Cook. It's about the same price as the one that Keith recommends. Um, but I've used a bunch of different thermometers, uh, remote ones, wireless ones, etc. The one from Perfect Cook, it folds flat like a folding knife, basically, and it is really kind of more like a stick thermometer, but it's it's got the stick point, but it's a plastic case. gives you a digital readout. In, in my testing, it's been the most accurate thermometer without like having to hawk a kidney to be able to afford it. So that's the one I'll recommend. Again, the one I'll recommend is called Perfect Cook. I'll put the one that he recommends in there, too. The one that links to the actual review on my site, 
that talks about it from my point of view as an owner, that's the one that I would recommend that you get. On the you know growing in coconut fiber, yeah, that, that stuff's not for growing plants in uh, as a standalone. It is a media for something like hydroponics or aeroponics. Uh, I've never heard of anybody using it for aquaponics, and you probably wouldn't, but maybe you could. Um, but it's really not something as a standalone growing material. He's dead on there. Uh, next up, I have a question for Paul Wheaton on combining rocket stoves with forges. Paul, take it away with your special guest. And please introduce us to this nice person. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com. And I am responding to a question that you sent me. And it turns out that when I'm opening up the question that you sent me, uh, it's about uh, not exactly rocket mass, well, kind of as rocket mass heaters, but it just so turns out that Erica Wisner, the author of the Rocket Mass Heater Builder's Guide, and um, I don't know how many plans do you have, like 20 different rocket mass heater plans? Uh, she just happens to be here, and so I thought it would be good to answer this question with her, just in case people think I'm being silly. Then either Erica's the exact same flavor of silly, or else we might both actually be right if we happen to agree with each other. But the crazy thing is, okay, so first I should read the question. Just say hi, Erica. Hi, everybody. Hi, Jack. <laughs> so the question you sent me is, can you make a rocket mass heater that also functions as a forge? Need to put bar stock into about 2,400 degrees. Can you do this and also have a rocket mass heater what core can I buy? And so I feel like I've got six hours of things to say in response to that, but we got to keep it short. D didn't you make a video about this? I oh yeah, in fact, in the four DVD set, the uh, uh, the old four DVD set. Uh, in fact, Jack Spearco appears in the opening credits and closing credits of all four DVDs as supreme executive producer with bacon, cheese, and sparkles. I would think that alone would be worth <laughs> the <laughs> so, yeah. purchase price. But, so, yeah, we have talked about this at length in other places. There's also some discussion on permies for people that, permies.com for people that are making things like that. Yeah. So just to give a really brief answer to this question, can you make a rocket mass heater that also functions as a forge? Absolutely. I made cute little uh, coat hooks and things for my friends out of old little pieces of fencing foil in my six-inch rocket mass heater firebox. I just got the bricks glowing. And and I did that in the one I used to heat my house. However, if you're talking about substantial bar stock and being able to hold it at 2,400 degrees to work it consistently, I think you're going to need something a bit bigger than the six-inch ones. And I think that's going to be a dedicated thing you're going to want outdoors or in a shop, not in your house. I, I agree. Um, <clears throat> just, just real quick... Um, I know that at an event in 2012, we made uh, something where we were trying to um, compare uh, a, a, a turkey cooker. We had a, we had two huge pots that were identical, and we filled them like two-thirds of the way. We filled them identically with water, and then it was like, which one boils water first, the, the turkey cooker or the, the J-tube rocket cooker contraption that we made? And the rocket contraption won, and we've, and that's part of the video out of the 4D set, uh, wood burning stoves 2.0. And, uh, and then I don't know what happened. Oh, we had a, a guy come by who was a blacksmith, and he's like, wow, that's so hot. I, I wonder. Next thing you know, we're shoving all kinds of metal in there. Uh -huh. And it seems like it was about, I'm going to, 
try to recall. I mean, this was six years ago. I believe uh, we put in some rebar, and in about 30 seconds, it was yellow hot. We also did a leaf spring, uh-huh. a chunk of a leaf spring, which might be comparable to the bar stock that your listeners talking about. And we were able to get that to what Ernie thought might be pretty close to forge welding temperatures. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that, that bright orange to yellow hot, um, sort of that gold range, um, that was at the top of the six-inch super insulated heat riser. We do have a sketch plan of that on Permies. I just threw it up there for a few bucks because I haven't had time to build one right. as a dedicated forge, but that was pretty darn close by accident. So I right. put what we did in like a two-page plan set that you can look at what we did and, and try to build something based off of that that might be a little bigger for your regular use. And we've talked about it several years, having the Rocket Mass Heater uh, Jamboree and Innovators events out here. is like, hey, can somebody put together a forge? I think there's a lot of interest. and then, <laughs> But there's also a lot of interest in like 47 other things. And so every year it seems like we're ending up not building the <laughs> forge. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things, if you were to take my plans for that J-style super insulated forge, build it, upscale it from 6 inch to 8 inch, the one thing that everybody was talking about is what would work really well would be a pass-through slot so you can get the metal you're heating into the very hottest part of the heat riser without losing the heat riser's function of intensifying the flame. So that's that's the direction I would go from that plan set to make something that would work bigger stock at those higher temperatures. So I know that in the DVD, uh, so I believe it's DVD 4 of that 4-DVD set, it has a bunch of footage of it in there. Um, and I think Ernie actually, like, puts uh he has like a square chunk of wood or not wood a square chunk of steel that he puts in there and i remember him uh putting it in for like 30 seconds and pulling it out and then he slowly twisted it to yes. kind of add yes. an ornamentation to it that was that was where i learned that i i learned blacksmithing more formally than my husband because um, he did the twist part first, and then he tried to bend it into a hook, and usually oh, the twist is the thing you do last. He was just playing. We were playing just around. playing. Yeah, and but he was... did make me a, a, an ugly little coat hook that I still love and endure. And and the, I think an important thing is is that it worked quite well as a forge, even though that's not yeah. what it was designed to do, but it would be better to make something that's dedicated to it. Yeah. Um, I know that like at the appropriate technology course this year uh, that's coming up in like uh, a little over a month – then um, uh, Chris McClellan is going to be teaching everybody how to make a shippable core. So everybody gets to take a shippable core home. Really? Yeah. Cool. Have you seen his design? It's, no, it's I amazing. Haven't. So so basically, if anybody comes and they take the course and they put in an extra two hundred bucks, they can either take it home or they can ship it to themselves. It's a shippable core, and this okay. will have a ceramic fiber core to it. Okay. Which is, of course, the most magical of them all. Uh, I'll <laughs> yeah. challenge you. Is it indeed the most magical of them all? Uh, ceramic fiber plus quartz <laughs> glass or ceramic glass. Okay. That is, all right. The all most right. magical one of all is probably that one with the giant test tube and the ceramic fiber. He believes that it would be two days out of the course that people would be building this stuff. Um, maybe less. But I would imagine if there was one student that was like, I want to build a forge. I think his design could easily be modified to be a forge. Yeah. But the so, cool thing is, is like rather than buying all this coal and then you have to like have a bunch of electricity to blow air onto the coal, we're getting it with just sticks. Right. This is we used a mix of pine and hardwood for that. I think somebody had some nice dry locust scraps from a project they'd been doing, and we mixed in dry pine. Well, 
Yeah, we and did that for some of the, I think, some of the competition. But for the forge part, I don't think we used any of that. I think it was I, all honestly, pine I don't, and, you know, all conifer wood. I don't remember, but it's in the video. Yeah, You'd it's true. you be able to see what's in the firebox. It was six video. years ago. Yeah. So, but I was using pine when I did it in my house. So, yeah, it's the, the way this intensifies the heat is really cool. We were definitely burning carbon out when we stuck the steel all the way down into the hottest part of the heat riser. Yeah. So the potential is there. It just needs more refinement. I would encourage your listener to go to richsoil.com to the appropriate tech course. Yeah. Contact the instructor and make an offer. Say, this is, this is what I want. If one yeah. of your students wants to make their shippable course something I can use, I'd be interested in supporting that prototyping because yeah. that's what it's going to take to get to where we have a plug-and-play shippable forge. Okay, part of the question was, can it be a rocket mass heater and a forge? And I want to say that if it's an outdoors rocket mass heater, I think there's a way that you could rig that up. Yeah. But I think that for an indoor thing, uh, no, please please don't do that. (laughs) I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, there are two major considerations. One is, in order to use the hottest part of the heat on the heat riser, You'd have to be pulling the barrel off in order to access it, to get in there with your stock and be able to work it. And the other thing is you're not going to need to blacksmith on the same schedule that you need to heat your house. They're two different functions. If you're heating your house every time you do that work in the summer, you may be unhappy. I agree with your analysis. And and that kind of makes me want to talk about, remember that podcast we recorded where some <laughs> that make put something in this greenhouse where the exhaust we vented in this greenhouse is like, do not do that. But we've got a whole podcast dedicated to that. All right. So uh, Thanks, good Jack. stuff from Bye. Paul there. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about two different things here. I have a question, but first I want to talk about fake news, you know, hashtag fake news, which, you know, I'll be honest, I think. Uh, you know, networks like CNN are like the key, uh, the kings of fake news. But it doesn't mean your right-wing news doesn't go along running fake news as well. I want to talk about the NFL thing and not the issue itself. And so I, I posted about this today, and so far everybody's been really good about it that has commented on the places where the post has been shared and actually stuck to the point. Because the point is not about whether or not somebody should stand or kneel or what for the in free speech and all of that. It's about a fact being reported as fact that's not a fact. It's a, actually a false um, by the mainstream media. And it is an example of the truth being used to sell a lie. This is what I keep hearing uh, whenever I make the mistake. If I get in my vehicle and have to go somewhere, and I've had to do that a lot more than often lately, uh, you know, I've put like 20 miles on my truck this week, which is unusual for me. And, uh, you know, so I'll be in the vehicle for a while and I'll listen to the the, 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 the radio talk show people. Or I'll t- put Fox News on when I have my lunch and see what the hell's going on out there so I can talk about it. And whenever this issue comes up about the NFL and this new decision uh, to have the players either stand or stay in the locker rooms, which, again, I'll remind you, 10 years ago, the players stayed in the locker rooms and they did all the way back to the beginning of football being on TV. It was only about 10, 11 years ago that our military decided to pay the NFL money to have the players stand there for the national anthem because they thought it looked good and would increase their ability to recruit. True story. Okay, So this is a manipulation in of itself. But the, the story is people are so upset over this that they're turning off the NFL and the ratings are down, and the revenues are down, and, and they are losing money over this. So they did this to stop the bleeding. So let's talk about the truth and the non-truth in this. So, 
first of all, do you, if, you, do, if you didn't read the post today, if somebody just asked you honestly, so is the, has, has the NFL lost money in the last couple of years? And even if it's not this, like, you know, let's say you think there's other reasons for it, good for thinking independently, wouldn't you generally think the NFL's revenue is down? Because that's, I mean, I heard it four times yesterday. Her Sean Hannity, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they had to do this because um, yeah, yeah. They, 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 the ratings are in the toilet and their revenues are down and it's costing them money left and right and they're dying. Okay. And I think most, and I even was like, I don't think so. I don't think the NFL's hurting at all. I and I, but I never checked. And I decided this morning when everybody was telling me how I'm a dumbass on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, because I posted this article that I did earlier in the week about the fact that basically the NFL could do whatever they want, um, and, and everybody came back and said, well, they're only doing it because they're losing money. And I'm like, well, I don't think so, because when I watch football on TV, like all the stadiums are full, and everybody I see out in public, I see plenty of people wearing football attire and T-shirts and stuff like that, and I, 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 I mean, Super Bowl was a big deal. Everybody was talking about the draft. I... I don't see this huge decline in numbers. So the first part is the truth. The ratings are down. Ratings are down with NFL football. And we can talk about why there might be other reasons for it in just a second. But revenues are not down. Let me read the, the post. Hello, just your friendly neighborhood fact checker here. Note I am posting on a claim. One claim, one issue. If we discuss this, please let's stick to that issue. Claimed by the media due to issues around players kneeling during the national anthem, NFL revenues are in steep decline. A recent decision they made was to try to stop that. First, can we all agree that this claim being made is tossed around and just accept it as fact? Okay, so what was the NFL's revenue in 2013, 2014, and 2015? What? You don't know? Well, don't you think you should know, or do you just simply affect the claim of uh, falling revenue by... Insert random talking head here. Well, here you go. 2013, $9.5 billion. 2014, $11 billion. 2015, $12.1 billion. Then you know how all this crap started in 2016, right? So we should now see a downward trend, okay? Well, 2016, $13 billion. 2017, $14 billion. Now, I never took Common Core math, but I think $14 billion is about $2 billion more or about 15% growth from 2015 to 2017 during all these plummeting revenues. Now look, the point here isn't about flags, kneeling, etc. Can we please stay on point? It isn't about you being mad or offended. It's about what you are being told versus the facts. NFL revenues are in decline is the claim, 7 to 8% year-over-year growth with projected revenues of $25 billion by the year 2027 is the reality. And all this is easy to verify with a web search. So why do all the talking heads, specifically right-wing AM radio and Fox News, uh, have no clue about this? I am thinking both the right and the left report hashtag fake news to make match their agenda and narrative. So now you know the truth. I am okay with you being mad at me or for pointing it out, by the way. Yet you should not be mad at me. You should be mad at the people who spent the last two years lying to you about this issue. I mean, if you care about this issue, of course... I don't really care about this issue. I care about adults behaving like children over and their overreaction to it. 
sources of information, and there are three links to uh, Bitfeed, Forbes, and Pro Football Talk at NBC Sports that back up the revenue claims and show graphs and all kinds of pretty pictures that show the projected growth and the actual growth of revenues. So... Anyway, that's just the thing that, like, what's been said over and over and over, and as little as I listen to talk radio, I've heard it a bunch. The NFL is being hurt financially over this. But the answer is no, they're not. They're making more money than they've ever made in history, and they have more robust growth than in history. And in no time ever in history has the value of the individual team franchises gone up so rapidly. And again, there's pretty graphs where you can see all this if you care. And the only reason I care is because everybody just believes it because they keep saying it. And I just want to point out another time where you need to always fact check shit, even stuff that sounds reasonable. Now, here's my other thing. I don't think people are turning off the NFL over this issue. I don't think most people that actually are football fans give a shit. I think they see it as a needless, annoying distraction that they don't really care about. And the media has overhyped the non-football people into being all uproar and feigned outrage of the week on social media. Every one, you know, every few months we'll get them all pissed off about this again and pretend that it's a thing. Because I don't think people are turning off football. And when you, when you do hear the people like, well, I stopped watching them years ago, then I don't know how to explain this to you, but you don't count for this. Because you didn't stop because of this, because this just started within the last couple of years. So if you haven't watched them in 10 years or 20 years, you probably never watched it. They're just an overgrown bunch of overgrown boys playing a game. You don't like football then. See, you don't matter in this discussion. Not the, not the whether or not people should stand kneel, etc. discussion. In the whole discussion about, you know, the NFL being hurt because of it. You are irrelevant. You are as irrelevant to the NFL if you're boycotting something you don't watch anyway. As I would be if I got upset at the people that made always maxi pads and said, "Well, I'm not ever gonna, I'm not, you know, I'm gonna boycott always maxi pads." Do you think always maxi pads would care that Jack Spearco said, "I'm not gonna buy from you"? No, I don't need maxi pads. To be a little bit more germane and, and not just, just baiting it a little bit there, right? Uh, how about this? What if I said, "Well, the NBA has done something that that I hate, so I'm not gonna watch basketball anymore." Some of you might say, "Well, maybe that matters." It doesn't. I don't like basketball. I don't have any interest in the game. And it's not because they're overpaid children or some shit like that. I just don't find that game interesting. And I think most of the people rattling their beaks about not watching the NFL right now don't like football. It's okay if you don't like football. I don't like basketball. I don't like NASCAR. I don't like soccer. I kind of, sort of, in a way, at times like hockey, but not really. I like to play hockey. I don't like to watch it. It's not really exciting to me. In fact, I don't watch baseball. Football is like my one sport that I like to watch, and I like to watch really one team, two kind. I, I've always had an affinity for the, the Eagles as well. I thought maybe last year I was going to get the best Super Bowl ever, ever and get the Steelers and the Eagles together in the Super Bowl. It didn't happen. My life's not better because the Eagles won. My son was really happy about it. He's a huge Eagles fan. But it's just a game. And that's the point. It's just a game. It's just a business. But if we're going to report something as factual, let's try checking some facts. Can we, guys? And it'd be fun to have some of you guys maybe call some of these uh, conservative radio hosts once in a while. Uh, when Next time they bring this up, especially your local ones, and they say their, their revenues are down, and just go, really? So what was their revenue last year? And when they don't know, point out it's actually up. It's just, I don't know. I think we should be looking at facts. Now, 
Let's look at something a little more fun than that, though. And let's look at a question. I'm trying to find it right now. On guns. Um, hi, Jack. This is from Jeff in Pennsylvania. He says, question 243 or 223. I bought a Remington Model 783 Compact in 243 last year. Short length of pull, 20s barrel. Intentions were originally to have a rifle for my kids, 14 and 10 EUs, for deer, coyote, and plinking. Although I have to admit, I wanted it as well to have a short life light rifle to carry for myself. I can't sit for more than a few hours anymore and tend to do a lot more still stock hunting uh, or do driving for others. Problem is the thing is very uncomfortable to shoot for me. Note, I'm 5'8 and 165 pounds. Way worse to shoot than my Ruger American in 308. I believe this feeling has a lot to do with the short stock, a combination of cheap scope that comes with it, very short eye relief, and possibly the shorter barrel. I haven't even let my kids shoot it yet. Options. One, upgrade the scope and replace the stock. I'm looking at an MDT LSS chassis stock. I like this more than other replacement stocks for the following reasons. It will allow me to put an adjustable AR-15 butt stock on it, improve bench rest shooting without the cost of effort or bedding, not to mention it will look really cool. If it still kicks too much, I can put a brake on it. I always see a 243 shells on the shelf at Walmart. Or number two, I could sell or trade the 243 for a Troy pump action in 223. Uh, more tactical and quicker follow-up shots than with the, pump act, with the pump action. Same options for AR-15 butt stocks. Uses AR-15 mags. Ammo is cheaper for planking. I can find it during times of ban, uh, if I can find it during times of band scares. Very low recoil out of the box. Comes with a brake already attached. Both options cost about the same in the end, and money is a concern, so I can't just get both. I live in PA, so semi-autos are out for hunting. Although they, were just, although they were just made legal for a coyote. I know a lot of people say 223 is too small for deer, but it is legal in Pennsylvania. Um, I do have concerns that the laws may change regarding assault rifles or even the Troy may become illegal. At least with the MDT stock option on a 243, the state won't know that I own it, and I can always switch back to a factory stock. I'm torn with which route to go. Would love to hear your opinion. Thanks, Jeff. First of all, I'm not making decisions about what to buy and what not to buy right now because somebody might change the law someday. That, that's, how, that's how we get laws changed, when we start actually reacting to laws that don't even exist. So I would make this decision based on what you want, not what the state might do someday. Uh, let's talk about, first of all, the, the initial gun. So I know there's people out there going, what a puss. You got .243 and it kicks too hard and good God, it's, you know, and if you look at the specs, it's an eight pound, eight and a half pound rifle, pussy. I mean, you know, what the hell's wrong with you? It's a .243. You know what? You're wrong, dude. Do people thinking that you're wrong? Um, the 243 in the in a improperly fit rifle will smack you, and I know because I made the same mistake. I bought an NEF H&R handy rifle in 243 with a 20 gauge barrel for my son Matthew when he was like 12 years old. And I thought this would be a perfect deer gun. 243 doesn't kick hard uh, with that short, stupid little stubby stock those NEFs have on the youth models. It was brutal. He shot it, and he, he got tears in his eyes. I was like, come on, kid. And I picked it up, and I threw a shell in it, and I fired it. I was like, holy crap, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I didn't know. And we ended up getting him a three fifty seven barrel for it. And uh, he shot it with that for a while. And when he got bigger, we put a full-length stock on it, put that two forty three barrel back on it, and it shot just fine. And additionally, these synthetic, straight, Cheap stocks that all these budget price rifles come with now. 
they suck. And they make perceived recoil worse in everything. I had a Winchester Model 70 in 7mm Remington Magnum. Now, that is a hoss of a round. It does have some oomph to it. Uh, but I routinely shot, a, a buddy of mine had a 338 Winchester. I shot his 338 all the time. And it, you know, that's, that's a, a definitely a heavier recoiling Magnum than the 7mm. That 7mm in that straight stock was literally painful to shoot on a bench. It wasn't bad shooting off hand, really, but it still wasn't comfortable. So I think your stock issue is definitely the thing here. If you want to get that expensive AR-15 style stock, you can, and it'll work, and this gun will be fine to shoot. So if that's what you want to do, you can do that. You, If you want both guns, I'll give you an option that you may not have considered. You know, Boyd's gun stocks make some really nice stocks for about $150 or less. Uh, that would be more of a sporting stock. And then, you know, maybe you have to save up a couple hundred bucks and you can buy this other 223 gun then and have both because you don't have to invest in the expensive stock system then. Of course, I didn't actually price it, and I don't know if you're factoring in, you know, the money that you would get by selling the Ruger. Um, so, uh, 400 bucks for this stock, uh, plus other things that you might do with it beyond the stock. So I'm guessing you are factoring in the, uh, the, the, the sale of the Ruger as part of this decision. Um, but that's something you, you could look at doing because the, the, uh, the pump action AR 15 style pump action, uh, is what? $800 retail. So probably street price around 700 bucks. So, I guess you're factoring that in there. You're saying they're about the same price, so I, that's the only way I can see you bridging that gap. Uh, and I don't know how much you'd actually get for that gun. I don't know how in-demand it is in your area, etc. But definitely, if you want the 243, replacing the stock will fix the problem. The 243 is a comfortable caliber to shoot for most shooters uh, with a, a properly fitting stock weapon. And there's... A thing that's going on there with your Remington um, Compact, the length of pull on that damn thing is only 12.3 inches. A standard length of pull for an adult rifle in America is generally somewhere between 13.5 and 14 inches, and some with as long as a 14.5 inch pull. And everybody has an ideal length of pull, but there's, you know, kind of that middle road of that 13 and a half inches is really acceptable for most adults, uh, even down to maybe 13 inches. And you might think that there's between 12 and 13 inches, you know, like 12.3 and 13.3, isn't that big a deal? You'd be wrong again. Um, it's, it is better, again, if you, it, in a perfect world, everybody would have a custom gunsmith that custom fits their rifle to their face. Um, but in a perfect world, we we would all have lots of other things too. We don't. Okay, so in an imperfect world, what we're going to have to do is is best case for what's available, and you are going to have less misery with a length of pull that's a slight bit longer than you want than a slight bit shorter than you want, because you can still with a little bit longer length of pull get up on the gun, get good position and get a tight cheek weld. As soon as we have to compensate by 
bending or contorting our body forward to scale ourselves down. And if you really want to feel how bad this is, get a hold of like a kid's BB gun, like a Daisy 105 that's really short, or a toy gun, and try to properly shoulder it with it seated in your shoulder pocket. And it's, it's impossible. Well, you're doing less but the same thing, so you're holding it loosely, it's smacking you in the face, it's jutting back into your shoulder, it's not, you know, there's nothing right about it. And then you take a round like the 243, which is a very high-velocity round, and it has a certain, because there's, there's two parts to recoil, there's the, the sharpness and the total pounds, and the sharpness comes from the speed of the recoil. Some of the really heavy recoiling rounds don't feel that bad, at least with just a couple, three shots out of them, because it's a, it's a thump of, of weight, but it's a slower, like a push. And you know, a lot of these higher speed, faster muzzle velocity ones that have less total pounds, they still have this sharp crack. Sharp crack, improper structure, improper fit, shitty stock, it's uncomfortable. And don't let your kids shoot it. Because even though the length of pull might be okay for them, that's a shitty stock. It's a shitty scope. I looked at the scope that comes with it. You're right. It's got too short of an eye. It's just bad. So if you want your kids to be able to shoot this thing, that adjustable stock's the way to go. If you want it for yourself, then you can look at something like Boyd's Gun Stocks, and for under 200 bucks, you can fix your problem easy and put a nice-looking stock on it. The, uh, the pump action by Troy is basically an AR-15 pump action. Um, Looks cool. It will have no recoil problems whatsoever. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll like it. It is not ideal for deer hunting. I just don't think the 223 is ideal for deer hunting, especially in your area. There's two things about Pennsylvania that make deer hunting and 223s not go together for me. One is the sheer size of the deer. The deer in Pennsylvania and you know north of Pennsylvania and Ohio and all are much bigger deer than what we have here in like Texas and Arkansas and Florida and whatever. Florida deer, I mean, you can almost put them in your game bag, you know, like a rabbit. Uh, Texas deer, a big deer will be 120 pounds. That's a big deer. Uh, you know, your average adult mature doe is going to be somewhere between 80 and 90 pounds. I've shot does in Pennsylvania that are over 200 pounds, and I've seen bucks go close to three. It's a big difference. It's a big difference in, in body size. And then uh, compounding that, you mentioned deer drives and stuff. Like in Texas, we usually shoot deer. We sit in a stand. A lot of times there's a feeder. Sometimes there isn't. You're watching open areas. Deer walks out. You get a steady rest. Deer standing there. Bang, dead deer. Pennsylvania, you kick a deer out from behind a blowdown and you take a running shot. You have your buddy pushing them, and even if it's not a full-on run, the deer's moving, uh, what have you. And, and that's why things like lever actions and pump actions, the Remington 760 and the Marlin 336C and 35 Remington, probably those two, and, you know, the 760 and 306, probably the most popular deer hunting rifles in the state of Pennsylvania. And, and that's why, because of that style of hunting, close bush moving animals. Follow-up shots, etc. Um, this gun is great for follow-up shots, but the caliber is not as sufficient. But I wouldn't tell you don't do it. I'd just tell you it's less than ideal. Uh, you do something like a, uh, a Barnes Trophy Bonded Bear Claw uh, in Federal Premium Ammunition in 223. It's a deer killer. I mean, but you just got to, there's going to be, there may be times that you have a shot 
that you would take with something like a 243 that you would choose not to. And honestly, a 243, more than adequate for deer, still not an ideal round for Pennsylvania deer hunting. Because you get these shoulder quartering on shots or something like that hidden in the bush, and I know I can break that shoulder, but you know, am I going to deflect that round? That's why rounds like, you know, and if you, if you look, again, 35 Remington, uh, and then 306, the most popular ammo when I was growing up anyway, for the 3006 in Pennsylvania, was good old-fashioned yellow and box Remington 180-grain round noses because nobody would shoot 300 yards anyway. And you wanted something with a structure that could break bone for those quartering on shots for that, where I can only just see, I got the head, I got an antler, I know that's a buck, there's his shoulder point, I've got this little place I'm going to you know, kind of snake in there and, and break that shoulder blade quartering on, and I wanted something that could take that deer down. And that was general mentality. So neither one's ideal anyway. So if you want to do the 223 thing, go do it. Personally, I think the 243 is a much more versatile round than a 223. We can take it down to higher velocities, longer range for varmints, and we can take it up with heavier weights completely sufficient for just about any big game animal. I don't know that I'd go playing around with elk with one. Uh, but certainly, you know, I know they do have elk in PA now, and you can get a permit, and if you win a lottery that's a lot like winning the actual lottery, then you can go shoot an elk. I'm sure you could borrow or rent a rifle for that. Um, I, I wouldn't fault you for either one of them. If it was me, I'd want to make the gun I have work, because I know it's that simple. It's changing out that stock. But something tells me you want this, this uh, AR variant, basically, I guess is what you'd call it. And I wouldn't worry about the state of Pennsylvania making this thing illegal. I wouldn't worry about it at all. It's a, it's a pump action. Uh, it does have the, the dangerous assault pistol grip. You know, with that pistol grip, man, I'm telling you, boy, that makes that gun so much more dangerous. God, the mind of liberals is insane. It re- They really are. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to tell you guys again, you can help support our show. Uh, by becoming a member and by doing your online shopping at TSPAS today. And those are kind of related in a way today. So I think most of you know, if you've listened all week, I'm running a sale all week long. I decided to run it through Sunday night, just to make it simple. It ends at the end of the week. It's called the bacon sale. And, and you don't get bacon, but you can use the term bacon, and then you get yourself some bacon. What, what the hell am I talking about? We have this, this troll on the Survival Podcast group on Facebook, a vegan troll, been trolling us with this vegan bullshit for two years. And I want to be clear, I don't have a problem with vegans. I have a problem with most vegans that I know are vegans, and the way I know they're vegans is within five minutes of meeting them, they've told me about being a vegan and why I should be one too. That's the kind of thing I have a problem with. He's also like an avowed socialist. I just don't think he's in the right environment unless you want to be a troll, and this dude's a troll. But he hasn't quite actually violated the rules. He's been very clever as a troll, so what I decided to do was we'll just do a sale in his honor. So this week you can get MSB for 25 bucks by using the code word BACON. You can, if you're an existing account member, you can use the form and uh, mail it in, and we will cancel your auto-renew and renew you for as many years. If you want to pay for two or three years because it's cheap, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, and then if, you, if you're expired or new, like so you haven't become a member yet, you can use code word BACON when you sign up online. And then the deal is you are supposed to eat an extra pound of bacon this week. And I'll tell you that over an extra 100 pounds of bacon have been consumed this week for Travis the Troll. And uh, you're supposed to give a gift of bacon. That brings me to my T-Spaz item of the day. So uh, my, my item of the day today is a bacon chocolate bar. And, you know, I've mentioned this a few times over the years. And I think people maybe think I'm kidding. 
Uh, this is called Moe's Bacon Chocolate Bar. And it's made uh, by a company called Vosges, Vosges V-O-S-G-E-S. Uh, and they're just a fantastic chocolate maker. I don't eat a lot of candy. That's why I used to wear a double XL shirt, and I now wear an L shirt, right? Because I stopped eating candy and crap and bread and all kinds of garbage. Um, but if I'm going to eat some, I, like have a, you know, if you don't ever have anything, then your life sucks. You know, there's there's a point to living, and part of it is enjoying life. So I will occasionally eat some really high grade chocolate. And I'm talking like a square or two, you know. And uh, so, like one bar might last my wife three nights, four nights before we we eat it all. Except when it's this one, because this one's hard not to eat at all. It is a bacon chocolate bar. It's made with bacon, smoked sea salt, and a 41% really awesome milk chocolate. And you might think bacon chocolate, nah, come on, that's just a gimmick. No, no, friends, it's very, very good. I actually learned about these things. A, a girl that used to work for me when I worked for Neil Franklin, uh, it was ran our HR department for us, she... Uh, Brought me one of these bacon chocolate bars. This is before TSP even existed. That's how long I've known about this wonderful stuff. And, and brought it in as a kind of a, a gift, but also a joke. Like, yeah, you love bacon so much here, you can have a bacon chocolate bar. And I was like, okay, well, I'll try it after lunch. And I didn't think it would be very good. It was very good. <laughs> and as soon as I bit into it, I went, well, duh. It's salt and chocolate and crunch. Just like chocolate pretzels are, which you can... Give yourself type diabetes, type two diabetes by looking at a bag of those things. So it's awesome. So give it a try, and remember, you're supposed to, if you do the sale, you're supposed to give a gift of bacon. Give somebody one of these bacon chocolate bars, but buy a couple extra because if you get two and you eat one and you're going to give one to your friend, you're going to break your deal and you're going to be like, I'll give it to myself. I like myself. I'm my own friend, right? Because you, I'm telling you, they're that good. So you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy. But uh, today you can buy Moe's Bacon Chocolate Bar, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Anyway, with that, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is uh, Tennessee River by Alabama. Um, Alabama is definitely the country supergroup of the 1980s. And many people, me included, feel that they are the most influential and probably the best country music uh, artist band that's ever existed, period. And it doesn't mean that there aren't people that aren't better than them. It's there people that aren't better than them in total, in their influence on the music and the total diversity of their work. Um, I believe in total that Alabama has had something on the, 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 the neighborhood of 44 or 45 number one hits. Tennessee River was their first hit, um, and it it's just a great sounding song. You can see why it made it, you know it made itself a success. This was released in 1980, 1980, and by the end of the decade of I told you they had over 40 number one hits. But by the end of the 80s, just in the 80s alone, they had 26 number one hits plus this one, so 27 number one hits. Randy Owen wrote this uh, song. It was really for him about going home again, back to the good life he left behind, where life is simpler and peace and love can still be found. It was uh, a type of song that it, when a guy actually starts to become successful in music, he starts to value the place that he came from even more. And uh, this is just a perfect song for a Friday, because it's a feel-good song. And I think a lot of us that, uh, that love the outdoors, even if it's not the Tennessee River or Alabama, really like this song because no matter where you live there's places that are like this for you 
With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. See you